0: This episode brought to you by the Velvet Hammer Podcast.
1: This is Young Lawyers Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm Sonia Russo. For this episode, We spoke to three young lawyers from Santa Fe, Atlanta, and Sacramento about the practice of law one year into the COVID-19 pandemic and how law practice and the legal industry have changed, in some cases permanently. We'll also talk about access to justice and how COVID has impacted our ability to help our most vulnerable clients. Let's get started. I remember the weekend when I knew everything was changing. I went to get takeout that Saturday night from a ramen restaurant in my neighborhood after canceling a reservation I had at a different restaurant because of concern about COVID. I remember looking around this packed ramen place and thinking, wow, I can't believe all these people are here like nothing's happening. Two days later, we were told to work from home. I made my last in-person court appearance that day for the next several months, which I was flipping out about because the courtroom was packed shoulder to shoulder. I recall staring at the microphone at counsel's table and thinking, you know, I don't want to use this thing. I didn't realize when I returned to my apartment that afternoon that I wouldn't go anywhere else for the next three months. James Liu, a litigation associate at Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe in Sacramento, distinctly remembers when he realized COVID was going to disrupt daily life.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I had originally had um, some tickets to go see a uh, NBA game provided by the firm for like business development reasons. And then the office kind of reached out and said, you know, this was before everyone was sent work from home, but they're like, you know, we're just taking precautions trying to avoid high density areas. So, you know, unless this is a really important, you know, business development opportunity, let's try, you know, be safe and not do that. My brother was actually at the Golden One Center uh, for the Kings-Pelicans game when they kind of decided to close everything down.
1: As we were all forced to adjust how we work and live, the legal industry was surprisingly nimble. Workplaces that never had flexible work schedules or the ability to work from home suddenly developed those capabilities literally overnight. For James... Working from home gave him flexibility that outweighed the isolation.
0: I really enjoy working from home, even though I know a big part of people not liking working in the office is the commute. And I can't really complain because my commute is like a 10-minute walk. So the commute wasn't even an issue in the first place. I just like working from home because I feel like you can get the most out of your time. Because sometimes when you go into the office, you know, you kind of get settled, get your coffee or your tea. And even before that, you know, you got to get into your work clothes, get ready. But when you're at home, you can kind of just roll out of bed and hop on the computer. It's really comfortable. You can be in shorts. You know, you can grab a snack from your own fridge, you know, anytime you want. Heat up tea, just not worrying about, you know, running into someone in the in the lounge or something. So overall, I, I've really enjoyed working from home.
1: Michelle Garcia is the managing attorney for Northern New Mexico at New Mexico Legal Aid in Santa Fe. For Michelle, shifting to working from home required her to develop coping mechanisms for dealing with both the stress of the pandemic and the reality that working from home can lead to a lack of work-life balance.
2: Now that my workplace is also my living space, I think I probably did like many other people and tried to really make that as cozy and homey and safe feeling as possible because the world was not feeling really cozy for most of 2020, and I spent a lot of time gardening. I spent a lot of time walking my dog and figuring out, you know, what I could do that really felt like it was different and connected in a different way from the legal work that I was doing. Because even though I think the work is very important and very meaningful, there are absolutely times where I need to really take a break from that.
1: James has been coping with the reality that as a first-year associate, he needs to be available 24-7. But early in the pandemic, work slowed down. Because he's working from home, Being on his laptop waiting for work around the clock was not a realistic option. So he figured out how to create work-life balance for himself while ensuring he's available as needed.
0: But overall, I do think it's kind of just, especially if you're working in an office, that's a little slow. You just have to understand that instead of 9 to 5, your work schedule may be um, like 10 to eleven, three 3 to 4, and then 9 to 11 in the evening or something, right? And so I think one strategy I've used is to just not feel guilty during the day when I know something is going to come in in the evening to just step away from my laptop. I mean, and just, you know, just relax a little, sit on the couch, watch an episode of TV or something, because you have your phone with you at all times. It's not like you're going to miss anything. And so it's to really kind of spread the workout across the day and really take those times during the day to relax because... I feel like in the beginning, there would be times where I wouldn't have a lot to do, and I'll just be fretting at my laptop. And it's like, you're not accomplishing anything, right? You could be relaxing, especially if you know something like you're waiting on someone to email you back. So I think, you know, taking little breaks throughout the day, especially if you know work's going to come in later in the day, is a way to kind of, in a way, separate work from life, right? Knowing that I'm going to have work later in the day. So let's not just be glued to the laptop for 12 hours, you know, kind of portion those off.
1: I don't know about you, but for me, living with COVID has been like Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, living in a terrifying axe murderer situation where you never know what's waiting for you around the corner. It could be something that would bring me happiness, like delicious takeout, or it could be a slow death, alone and unconscious on a ventilator. COVID or not, one thing we all know is that uncertainty with the economy, with whether a case is going to settle or go to trial, with whether the partner you regularly work with is going to keep giving you work, that uncertainty is an inherent part of our profession. James found that an effective way to cope with that is focusing on his mental and physical health.
0: We never know what's coming around the corner. Things could get better, things could get worse. Like, you listen to analysts and experts on the economy. And it seems like some people think it's going to go up. Some people think it's going to go down same way with health experts. So, you know, you really have to find a way to make sure that you're mentally healthy, physically healthy at home, because it is just our first year, right? It's a marathon, not a sprint. We got many years ahead of us. I feel like this is a very, this is a situation Uh, And circumstances that are very conducive to scaring someone off, you know? And so I think being able to try to balance everything at home and finding a system that works for you because it's probably different for everyone. But I think the, the core thing is just making sure that you're not always worrying about what's coming next.
1: Developing new coping mechanisms for dealing with this unprecedented wave of stress and change has been essential for Sean Hoover, who's a trial attorney for the Georgia Capitol Defender's Office in Atlanta. Sean represents clients accused of crimes for which they could be executed by the state of Georgia if they're convicted. But Sean has found ways to cope with the incredibly heavy burden he shoulders, like working out by using the punching bag he has in his office. Full disclosure, Sean is one of my good friends, and we were ABA Young Lawyers Division scholars together. He's a public defender, and I'm a prosecutor. One thing he and the rest of my ABA family have been doing since COVID started is we have regular video calls together. That's personally been a lovely gift for me because we never did that before the pandemic. Here's Sean.
3: I mean, I still try to work out three to five days a week, closer to four to five days a week, simply because. That's the only way. I mean, you see my heavy bag <laughs> when I'm in here and I'm just, I, I'm typing emotion. I need a, mo- you know, a moment, you know, I'm slamming on that thing. I mean, it's a lot more difficult now, but then I still have a lot of friends that I could talk to that are, you know, in the legal field. I mean, you're one of them. I mean, like we talk about everything else besides work a lot now, which is a lot more helpful because I mean, back in the day, 90% of my, uh, of our conversations would have been about some type of work that we're doing, but now, I know more about you and I, I mean, we all know more about each other now personally, simply because, so, I mean, that helps. For for the longest, when you're a public defender and you talk to non-public defenders, they don't understand what we're going through as public defenders, just like DAs. I don't understand what DAs go through. But nowadays, I understand what y'all are going through and y'all understand what I'm going through simply because it's new to everybody. I mean, that's the best part about it, just talking to everybody when I'm not punching a heavy bag, just... Communicating with people is the best thing that helps right now.
1: On top of the isolation and added stress of working from home, the pandemic has also made it more difficult to find support for professional development, such as mentors. James was still in his first year at Oric when COVID hit, and the pandemic pushed him to work harder to develop mentors in his office.
0: When COVID actually happened, it kind of coincided with one of my mentors in the Sacramento office retiring. And so I kind of already lost that in-person mentor, even if we had, were able to go back into the office. This is something I've kind of struggled with because going into COVID, you don't have like your kind of career mentor anymore. It was tough, but the firm kind of, you know, there was like a firm wide career coach you could reach out to, but that's still not the same because they are kind of helping everyone out. So I kind of just had to overcome this anxiety or this uh, social obstacle of just, you know, either, you know, I don't have a mentor or I just need to reach out and get one. And so I kind of just started taking the initiative to email people that I had worked with and had good relationships with just more general questions. And it was really hard to start doing that because you just get like, uh, you're like, oh, do they think I'm like bothering them? You know, a lot of people have kids at home. It's like they have even less free time. But eventually, you know, I found a couple more senior attorneys that were pretty happy to, you know, provide 15, 30 minutes every couple of weeks to, you know, check in with me and make sure things are going well. In terms of that, I think I was able to get over that mentorship obstacle, but it was definitely tough and kind of nerve wracking to start.
1: In terms of professional development, COVID has not been without its silver linings for James he got involved with Oric's pro bono efforts, which gave him the opportunity to quickly develop practical litigation skills in his first year of practice that pre-COVID, he might not have been able to do otherwise.
0: So Oric is really great in that they have like someone dedicated just to pro bono, like a pro bono coordinator. There's just like a lot of different opportunities. And so I filled up a lot of my time doing all sorts of stuff that I think I would not have been trusted to handle as a first year normally, it was really nice because it was like, usually the pro bono projects were like me and one partner. And that's like way more partner interaction than you would normally get on like a big staffed case. You know, you usually talk to like a managing associate who then is reporting to a senior associate who's reporting to partners. And so I was able to, you know, develop some really good relationships there and just learn more about how I should be doing things I think one of the biggest projects I was on was an an asylum case. I was brought on midway through the process already. I was able to handle all like this filing stuff, you know, all these deadlines. And, you know, as a new attorney and in law school, they don't really teach you how to draft motions or anything, right? And so I was a little panicked and a little nervous at first, but when I got through that whole ordeal, I felt way more capable than I was going in.
1: We hope you're enjoying this episode. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor.
0: The Velvet Hammer podcast is a down and dirty look at what really makes trial lawyers tick. Nationally recognized and award-winning plaintiff attorney, Karen Kohler is an aggressive, charismatic, and dominating litigator wrapped up in a sweet little mommy-grandma package. Her colorful stories teach lessons drawing upon 35 years of experience including the sensational four-month Ride the Duck trial in Seattle. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcasting app.
1: Welcome back, listeners. We're picking up right where we left off. We now return to our episode already in progress. For Michelle and Sean, who are both public interest lawyers in different sectors, COVID has drastically changed the way they practice law, perhaps permanently. Court switching to video appearances has impacted both Michelle's and Sean's practices. Video hearings and the inability to file court documents in person have created problems for Michelle's clients at New Mexico Legal Aid.
2: Oh, I think it creates a lot of issues with access to justice. Unfortunately, that's just one of many flavors of accessibility problems that we've seen since coronavirus started. I mean, people being able to drop documents off at of the court because they don't have access to hand filing anymore was a major problem at the banning of coronavirus. One of the possibilities that we discussed with the Administrative Office of the Courts and uh, people higher than me in our organization took the time to you know, explain what was happening in rural areas where infrastructure was bad to begin with, people were not able to get to local district courts or magistrate courts or the Metropolitan Court in Albuquerque easily. And we proposed drop boxes become available so that people could drop off documents without having to come in contact with somebody This was in the battle days where personal protective equipment was really hard to come by in New Mexico, and we had heard from our colleagues in places like California that this was an effective way for people to drop documents off in rural places, but the courts didn't go for it. Hand filing, as you may already know, has really dramatically changed during COVID here in New Mexico. There are some courts, for example, the Court of Appeals, that is not using hand filing at all. They're requiring everybody to use the electronic filing system. But the electronic filing system was relatively new at the start of COVID, and a lot of people did not know how to use it correctly. And the problem is that we're talking about very specific deadlines, in our cases on the civil side, that people have to meet in order for their rights to be protected. And dealing with those electronic access issues has just been, I would say, a continuous issue for a number of our clients that just don't have good internet So being able to get copies of documents or to submit evidence has become far more difficult. And my estimation is that it's taking much more of our attorney time to really gather all of that up in coordination with some of our non-attorney professionals to make sure that we
1: have all those documents than it used to. Beyond access to justice, Michelle believes that COVID has affected every single part of her practice, the legal system, and the legal profession in ways large and small, temporary and permanent.
2: Well, I would probably be remiss if I didn't point out what I think has happened with some cases, which is that we've seen maybe an artificial acceleration of certain types of cases directly because of coronavirus. I mentioned earlier that I'm doing more housing cases. Those are specifically evictions that are not covered by the different levels of eviction moratoriums at the state and federal level. And there are other cases in talking with some of our community partners, like the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence, where we think what is happening is a little bit like a snowstorm, where people might be trapped With abusive members of their household and unable to get help in any meaningful way, and that when federal restrictions or state restrictions allow for freedom of movement and um, being in public in a different way, that there will be a flood of cases. In the same way that we would see, you know, very little action during a big snowstorm, and then when the snow melts, all of a sudden people are calling or they're seeking help at a shelter or they're filing for an order of protection. I think that those blips, whether it's increasing. In number of evictions that are happening or seeing a temporary decrease in some instances with the number of domestic violence petitions, that those are smaller changes that are happening. But if coronavirus persists so long that the number of evictions has been artificially high because of you know the changes to the economy and people being unable to work, and we then see this flood happen afterwards, it would not surprise me if the effect that it had was as great as what happened with the mortgage and the housing crisis back in 2008 and 2009, because there's only so long that our courts and our economy can operate in this kind of panic mode that has been accelerated by pandemic before it has a very permanent type lasting change. And for the families that we serve, it has already had that. There are people who have in fact been evicted during a pandemic when it is especially dangerous to be homeless. The flip side of that is that I think some of the changes that we are seeing on the court side and with the pandemic are likely to be very temporary you know, the ability to do trials the way that we used to, where you can look jurors in the eye and be very close to them and and maybe get a feel in the room for what is happening or whether things are persuasion uh, persuading people in a particular way. I think that we're probably going to go back to something that looks like normal because our system of doing jury trials dates back hundreds of years, all the way back to very old England. So I'd be very surprised if coronavirus was able to kill that off entirely. I just don't think it's likely. I think it's more likely we're going to go back to doing things the way that we used to. But I would hope that the ways in which we've become more flexible as a profession, ours being a profession that I think by nature is maybe a little bit wealthier or a little bit more conservative than other segments of the population, I would hope that the flexibility that has been so hard earned and so hard earned uh, learned this year is a permanent change. I hope that we as professionals take more time to be more responsive to what the court needs, what the public needs, what our client needs. And I hope that that's a change that persists long after coronavirus is gone.
1: New Mexico Legal Aid was forced to come up with some creative ways to navigate around the barriers thrown up by COVID, reaching out to clients with a panoply of solutions based on technology and on more traditional means of communication. Here's Michelle.
2: So we have taken some of our funding from various grants, as well as the Legal Services Corporation out of Washington, D.C., and we've used it to implement solutions that are both more high-tech and more low-tech. So on the accessibility side, We have been working to take some of the money that we have, I believe, from one of our VOGA grants, the Victims of Crime Act here in New Mexico, and we've actually used it to distribute phones to the clients that are served by that program so that they can take photographs of evidence, they can call into hearings, and if they're able to connect to Wi-Fi, they can also use that phone to talk to the court. And for many of our clients, um, having a stable phone connection where we had prepaid minutes on the phone means that they are able to speak to the court and they are able to be in good communication with us. So we're literally giving them the infrastructure, in this case, the physical phone device to do so. We've also done some stuff that's really low tech. Towards the beginning of coronavirus, there were some really important IRS deadlines related to people being able to get stimulus money um, through IRS portals. And we advertised the fact that we were helping people submit applications or get caught up on back tax information. And we did so over radio ads with PSAs in English, Spanish and the Navajo language, Janae Bazad, we also were putting flyers into food distribution baskets so that when people came to pick them up, usually in conjunction with school parking lot pickup sites, they would have a flyer in their basket that gave them information about how to go to the website and work on it themselves, and also had contact information for us as a nonprofit entity where we could help them.
1: For Sean and his clients, video hearings simply cannot replace in-person hearings for certain types of involved evidentiary hearings as he found out during this pandemic.
3: The last hearing we had, there were a couple thousand pages worth of evidence that we were putting in. I mean, there were charts and there were equations. We were fighting um, the jury composition, which has to deal with the census and it has to deal with population control. It has to deal with numbers. It has to deal with where people are. I mean, thousands of pages that not only our expert has to talk about, but the judge has to be able to follow along. and. The DAs, whoever are there, have to be able to follow along. Just having something like that online when nobody knows how to put evidence in, like, so all of us can see it, or if we're trying to get to a certain page in a certain part, you know, we can't just say page, whatever lines this through this. We have to be able to put that on the screen and, you know, try to highlight it. And the defense, we're not the ones that are usually controlling the computer. It's usually somebody in the judge's office or in the judge's courtroom that's doing it. And I mean, they're not trained on this, nobody really is. Just dealing with the sheer volume of information that we have to deal with, it's terrible. I mean, I've seen virtual hearings that were, it it took 20, 30 minutes just to get a piece of evidence on a screen to where a judge could see it. I mean, if we're talking about thousands of pages of this, it literally would take forever.
1: With Sean's capital homicide cases, COVID has suspended all jury trials and told all speedy trial deadlines, delaying his cases, all while his clients remain in jail during a pandemic.
3: In Georgia, we have two different types of speedies. We have a constitutional speedy, which basically, to make a long story short, everyone who gets arrested for something has a constitutional speedy. Basically, what that means is without filing anything, that person's case has to be put in front of a judge at a certain amount of time. Usually it's around six months. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. We also have a statutory speedy, which means if the attorney files the speedy, the state has to get it done within a certain amount of time. Like they actually have to have a trial or the case gets dismissed within a certain amount of time. However, since COVID hit, all speedies are pretty much null and void right now. So they don't exist at this point.
1: One thing both Michelle and Sean highlighted was that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted their vulnerable clients who are already without resources. For Michelle's clients, many of whom live in rural northern New Mexico, COVID has only worsened pre-existing infrastructure problems that were already making their access to the court system more difficult. The problems
2: that relate to infrastructure, whether we're talking about a good road for somebody to come and drop documents off at a court or whether we're talking about a client or an employee that's able to access internet at a home location, those infrastructure problems definitely predated COVID. The solutions, I think, are incredibly complicated. You know, They have to do with things like land status and the fact that some of these communities have not had any infrastructure investments really to keep pace with the national average for many, many, many years. COVID, I think, it kind of laid bare the fact that those inequalities existed in a way that maybe set everybody in the country back a little bit. In places that were farther to begin with, they had an even more extreme reaction. So they lost, in some cases, their few access points. I can tell you that even where I'm speaking to you today, in Santa Fe County, we had a a mail location. You know, We have a post office here in town. And because a mail carrier was suspected to have contracted COVID, Many months ago, back when testing was extremely difficult to procure, all of our mail wound up getting quarantined and delayed in a local bail operation. And at the point where we can't talk to our clients in person, we can't have documents dropped off at the court, and we also can't send things certified mail, our ability to get in contact with people, particularly in our rural locations, goes down to almost zero All we've got left is internet and phone, and as we've discussed before, those are not always good options for our clients for a
1: number of reasons. For Sean and his clients, the situation is bleak. Sean isn't allowed to go to the jails where his clients are incarcerated pending trial. So the only option open to him for communicating with his clients is recorded. That significantly impacts what he can talk about with his clients.
3: The biggest effect that we have right now is we can't talk to our clients. We can't see our clients. So anything done right now, we can't just, I can't call my client over the phone and tell them something's happening. It just, because of privilege, it can't happen. All of our conversations have to be in person. And that, that even means in a room that's not being recorded, that doesn't have a piece of glass in between us. The way the law is written out and the way it should be looked at, even though sometimes it, most times it isn't, it's very difficult for us to speak to our clients right now simply because the easiest way to do it right now is over the phone, and we know that's recorded. Or even over the ones that do have internet, and we can talk to them over the the computer, we know that's recorded too. So conversations are minimal. I mean, that's the part that's affected us the most, because we have clients that are literally sitting there knowing the state of Georgia is trying to kill them, and we can't tell them anything about their case because everything we're, we're doing right now is being recorded in some fashion. That's the hardest part for us right now we can't give them a lot of the information that we normally would. Right now, our our um, communications are very light. It's more of how are you doing? How's, how are the people around you doing? Have you spoken to your family? Like we can't tell them anything about their case, even the information we do have. The one good thing about what we do, we just filed a 256 page suppression motion. So, I mean, I can send that to the client and that helps them because they see at least We can't really have, we we can't have the face-to-face with them. We can't really tell them a lot, but it shows them that we're still working for them. We're still doing something for them. And that 256 page motion, I mean, there's, you know, there's the case law involved. There's the evidence involved. There's the arguments involved. So that gives them something else to do. Now we can talk about what case law says. We could talk about how this case applies, you know, how a certain case that we quoted applies to your circumstances or how it doesn't. So that helps us, but we still can't get into the details of this is what we're going, this is our strategy going forward or this is what we're trying to do. We can basically say we're, we're trying to suppress evidence, but we can't go into our end game or this is what we're looking for. This is what we're trying to, we, we just can't talk to them about that because we know for a fact that these, these, are, these are still being recorded.
1: The pandemic is also impacting the kinds of plea deals that criminal defendants are accepting because they're desperate to get out of jail. Where they're at much higher risk of contracting COVID. Here's Sean.
3: My older clients are pleading to like maximum probation offers just to get out of jail right now. So something that you know down the line, you're looking at five to ten years of probation. They're doing twenty five to thirty. Like it's it's a ridiculous amount of time that people are actually pleading to because they want to get out, not knowing that. I mean, we all know thirty years. You being on probation for thirty years is just. The system is waiting to bring you back. That's all that really is. I mean, the money alone is a ridiculous amount of money. It's staggering. But I mean, people, people want to get out of jail. They want to get away from sales where there are other sick people there and they want to get home to their families who some of them could be sick. I mean, I get why they want to do it, but it's it's scaring me because not enough judges are stepping in. And a lot there there are a number of DAs that are taking advantage of a lot of people right now. So that's the biggest thing. And like I said, it doesn't affect my clients, but it affects the majority of the people that are, that are getting out on, on sentences right now.
1: Sean believes that the consequences of defendants accepting much worse plea deals than they might otherwise have because of COVID will impact the criminal justice system for years to come.
3: What I think is going to happen is we're going to get a ton of, if not appeals, we're going to get a ton of habeas stuff. We're going to get a ton of Bringing this back for to, you know to change the senate. I mean that's that's the problem that's going to happen, but it's going to take some time for something like that to happen. It would it would have to take a large amount of people, and that's only going to be over time. The DAs and the judges are stronger than public defenders. I mean they have when it comes to them being in the in the um, the state senate, they have the people there that that backs them more than backs us. I mean counties in Georgia get sued all the time because they're doing something, but we can't. That process takes 10, 20, 30 years sometimes. So it's going to get resolved. The problem is a lot of people are going to be hurt before it gets resolved, simply because that's how this system is, unfortunately.
1: Sean reflected that beyond imposing significant barriers to representation for his clients, COVID has also changed legal practice for the young lawyers that he works with, in good and bad ways. On the one hand, younger lawyers starting now have to be better with video conferencing technology. But on the other hand, they have to understand that because motions won't be heard for months, there are no more baby steps.
3: Things are different now than they were a year ago. A lot of the young attorneys, just like me, I interned in the public defender's office all three years of law school. So I saw one way of doing everything. That's changing now. The good thing is the younger attorneys understand Zoom better than the rest of us. They, They understand how to use it, sadly. Like my, I think my nephew understands Zoom more than I do at this point. So, I mean, that's a good thing that they're going to be ready for that. They're coming into a new system, which could be good, could be bad. I think part of it could be good because the way things were done in the past, it has to change now. And I'll just, I'll leave that in regards to public defenders. Well, the way certain public defenders were taught to do things, we can't exist like that now. We can't take these little motions for granted anymore. I'm filing a motion to get your client in court. I mean, a day for you filing a motion could be two, three weeks now. It could be three or four months before you get that person in. I mean, things are different now. So that's a good thing. And they're going to come in running because they're going to have to. I mean, there's no no baby steps anymore in this. It's you you start running or you're going to fall. So I think that's a really good thing, especially if they're prepared for it. I just think they're going to be better prepared. Like if this were me, when I came out of law school, and you give me 300 cases, I would feel overwhelmed. But I mean, I was never prepared for what we're doing now. So I'm glad they're getting a look at it now before things, before they were set in the ways that I was set in, because it's taken me a while to transition. I think their transition is going to be a lot quicker than mine was, which is a really good thing.
1: In addition to younger lawyers getting more experience in court, for example, or really hitting the ground running, as Sean just talked about, Another silver lining of COVID is that the legal profession has had to change to be more flexible. That's a change that Michelle thinks will last.
2: I would be very surprised if we was, if we had fewer options at the end of this. I also think that telework has really shown the both the necessity of having some of those serendipitous conversations that happen with your colleagues that are unstructured time. And I also think that it's shown maybe the foolishness of saying that people need to be in one place to do work in a particular way. One thing that I've noticed when I read articles about management during COVID is that there was a style of management where people felt like they had to individually check somebody's work, maybe what they were doing each hour or what they were doing each day or what they were doing each week. I hesitate to use the word micromanagement, but some people might call it that. And I don't think that that's possible in the same way during COVID when you're not in the same physical space. And so I think it's going to force Some management styles to become more creative and to really maybe be more task focused, where in the past we were focused perhaps more on hours or billable work. And I think the legal profession in general has been focused on billable hours probably for decades, if not centuries. And this concept that you can take an attorney time and use that professional metric and say, okay, we're going to slice it down to 0.1 of an hour is. Maybe also on its way out. Because if we believe that the way people work is better measured by tasks than it is by hours, then the legal profession, I think, is going to have to reckon with how we consume time and how we spend it on behalf of our clients. I would hope that one of the things that comes out of coronavirus is that we as a profession are a little bit more thoughtful about how and when we spend our time.
1: Obviously, it's the understatement of the year to say that COVID has required all of us to adjust the way we live and work. All of this change can be incredibly disorienting, even now, one year into this pandemic. James has this advice for first- and second-year lawyers who are feeling adrift right now.
0: Any young attorney that's like a first-year like us or you're going in, like, you're definitely not alone. There are young attorneys across the country that are probably feeling nervous and lost. I definitely think just, just reaching out to people, you know, getting a lot of different opinions, a lot of different that leads to a lot of different you know, perspectives and that can help you kind of survive this crazy situation.
1: After an incredibly challenging year, Michelle has one piece of advice for young lawyers that's really just a great rule to live by. You have agency. You can exercise control. If you're not happy doing something, change what you're doing.
2: Here we are one year into COVID and what, I'll tell you what I tell the young lawyers that I work with, which is that here we are, with this one wildlife. And as far as I know, it's the only one that we get. For people who have seen coronavirus deeply affect friends, family members, or in some instances, you know, cause losses and death in their immediate circle, you know, I think what this has driven home is that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. And so for people that feel like their work maybe is not what they expected, it's unfulfilling, it's not what they thought it was going to be, I would strongly encourage them to find a segment of the legal profession that really speaks to their passion because this is hard work. And if you're spending it doing something that does not speak to you, that you cannot see yourself doing for another day or a week or a month or a year, the person to change that is you. Attorneys spend plenty of time complaining about how our profession works or issues that we've got with all kinds of things. That would be a whole other podcast too. I've got some great attorney jokes, but I think at the end of the day, if we want to see change happen at the personal level, it has to come from us. And I think having that level of of agency over how our profession is going to be different after coronavirus, how it's gonna be different heading into the one year mark, how hopefully it'll be different many, many years into the future, like that power is with us. It's not with anybody else. And if we want to see change happen in our profession, whether it's along the access to justice issues that we were talking about earlier, whether it's in the world of work-life balance, whether it's in the type of work that we take on as attorneys or how we do billable hours or whatever, it's up to us to change it.
1: What the last year has given me is confirmation of what I always knew to be true. The most important thing to me is the people I love and the people who love me. COVID forced me to be deeply grateful for what I do have in life, not to ruminate on what I don't have. I reached out to some people I hadn't talked to in a while because life is short. And as Michelle said, we've only got this one life. Sometimes that worked out and sometimes it didn't. But after a year of living and working through a global pandemic, I have never appreciated all the wonderful things in my life more than I do now. So get out there, live your life and live it the way you want to live it. Tell your loved ones you love them. Put in those hours building your career but make sure you get outside and tip your face towards the sunshine. Feel the warmth of the sun and breathe in that crisp air and know that you're exactly where you need to be. You deserve it. We all do. To close our show, Matthew Kerbis has this episode's Financial Wellness Minute. You've heard it before. It's one thing to earn your money, but it's another thing to keep it. Matthew discusses how to track your spending, which is often overlooked, but a crucial part of your financial well-being. Here's Matthew.
4: Thanks, Sonia. There's a lot of advice out there to improve your financial well-being, but none of it matters if you are not tracking what you earn and what you spend. Tracking what you earn is simple. For example, if you get paid twice a month, then track your net earnings from both paychecks in a spreadsheet. That's what you earn after taxes, 401k contributions, and other deductions. First, you total up each month and total up each year to give yourself an understanding of the cash you will have to spend on living expenses, student loans or other debts, non-necessary items or experiences, and, most importantly, how much you can potentially save. The next step is to start tracking every cent you spend. That's right, every cent. Most banking apps have started to incorporate tracking features native to the app, and there are other third-party options out there, such as Intuit's Mint. However, those apps and features allow you to passively track your spending, which we're not ready for yet. To really understand your financial well-being, you need to consciously be aware of your spending. Instead, you can use a spreadsheet app, such as Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets. Next, look back at your records and start paying attention to what you are already spending your money on. Break it down into categories like groceries, gas, medical, Clothes, insurance, rent or mortgage, and so on. How granular you get is up to you. Maybe you hit up your local coffee shop and frequent the dry cleaner. They consider adding categories like cafe and laundry. Some of these categories make sense to track on a monthly basis, such as rent, because it's one payment a month. Many of these categories you're going to want to track every week. After a month of tracking your weekly spending and net income, set yourself a weekly limit on spending. Give yourself enough of a buffer so you can save a little money every week. Finally, in addition to all of that tracking you are now doing, you also need to track how much you go under or over your weekly limit. If you go over, then you run the risk of spending more than you earn. And if you go under, then you're well on your way to paying down that student debt or taking that long-dreamed-of vacation. With these data at your disposal, you can safely begin your journey to better financial well-being. This Financial Wellness Minute is brought to you by the ABA YLD Student Loan Debt and Financial Wellness Team. Back to you, Sonia.
1: And that's our show. It's been great having this opportunity to write and co-produce this production. Stay tuned for future episodes when we'll discuss racism in the legal profession and how innovations in legal technology could change the legal system, sometimes with unintended consequences. Thank you to my team for their support. Jeffrey Lynn for his conducted interview, Matthew Curvis for his financial wellness minute, and editorial assistance on this episode. And last but not least, the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network. Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyers Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division.